You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, Mabel Chu finds out if non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is really a big problem. We also need to have a better idea how we should be advising and how we should be actually treating our patients when we do find they have either NAFLD or NASH. And how cutting mental health beds has increased involuntary admissions. A delay in the availability of a bed may result in the point where the admission has to be on an involuntary basis. But before that... Last week in France saw the Hydration for Health conference where they've made some extraordinary claims about the benefits of drinking water. Looking into those claims is Margaret McCartney, who's a GP in Glasgow and also writes regularly for the BMJ. Thanks for talking to us today, Margaret. Thanks for having me. So um, what was this conference about? What were they trying to do there? Hydration for Health is an organisation which has been created and sponsored by Danone, who are a French food company and who produce Volvic, Evian and Badoui um, bottled waters. So they do have an interest in telling us that bottled water are, is good for us. Now, there's this kind of idea that we should be drinking two litres of water a day. Where did that figure come from? Yeah, I mean, this is just fascinating, and it's been thoroughly debunked um, at least twice in the peer-reviewed medical literature. There's never been any evidence that says that, well, people need to drink more than they would naturally wish to drink. Certainly, there's absolutely no um, way that I would want to tell people to food restrict themselves Mm -hmm. um, for fun or or to kind of avoid drinking water when they would like to. Um, But there's never been any good reason to recommend this eight glasses of water a day and it just seems to be perpetually repeated and even the NHS Choices website um, tells us that we should be drinking 68 glasses of water a day um, which as I say is nonsense. Now one of the claims made uh, was probably something that lots of parents would be interested in which is this idea that making your kids drink more water will actually increase their intelligence and make them do better at school. I think that there's possibly a good point and that some people have made in that many children don't have easy access to fluids or decent toilet facilities at schools. And obviously, um, I think that children should have access to um, (laughs) decent fluids and decent toilet facilities at schools. So this is not an argument against either of those things. What it is an argument against is that there is no evidence that continually sipping on water during the day um, will make your children cleverer. That's not borne out by any evidence. And in fact, um, if you look on a lot of the water promoting industry websites, they will go back and they will cite references which invariably include a BBC report from a few years ago that said that making children drink more water will make them cleverer and better able to concentrate. And this all comes back to a small study that was done in a school in Scotland um, asking children to drink more, which was done as part of a lot of other measures Mm. and which teachers concluded afterwards seemed to be good. (laughs) Um, But it wasn't done in any scientific way. Um, I don't think it was ever alluding to any sort of scientific um, study at the end of it and yet this is still being cited um, on numerous websites as a good reason to tell children to drink far more water than they would normally like to. Mm, I mean it's interesting I think the um, research that you pointed to as well said that um, drinking too much water could have a detrimental effect. Yeah, on... I mean, there, there's a couple of review articles. And again, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say, um, that, you know, this will definitely cause harm. But I mean, some authors have pointed out that drinking water when you're not thirsty may have very small effects on some measures of some cognitive functions. So I wouldn't want to be alarmist in any way and sort of say, you know, this could do you huge harm if you drink mm-hmm. more than you want to. But rather that the situation is not clear cut. There certainly is not a vast body of evidence sort of that would tell us that, you know, drinking more water 
to all make children brainier, cleverer, less likely to run around. Um, you know, this is um, this is not borne out in evidence. Um, so, kind of as a bottom line, um, if a patient was to come to you and say, Dr McCartney, should I be drinking more water? Um, what would you say to them? I mean, I think if someone was to ask me, um, a whale adult with no problems with kidney stones or, or you know, other illnesses, how much to drink a day, I would say drink um, you know, as much fluid as you would like to um, for enjoyment and comfort. Um, your kidneys are fantastic. They are very well able to concentrate your urine um, when you need to and to dilute it when you don't. Um, so don't make drinking water into health advice that you have to slavishly adhere to with your bottle of water in your hand ready for your thirsty lips. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, Mabel Chu finds out about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I have with me in the studio Dr. Quentin Anstey, who is Senior Lecturer and Consultant Hepatologist at Newcastle in Britain. Quentin, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Hello, Mabel. Now, you're here to talk to us about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and the fact that we don't really know how big a problem it is. Would you like to, first of all, give us the definition for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Absolutely. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, essentially it's a spectrum of progressive liver disease, starting with simple fat in the liver, what's called steatosis, then progressing on through fat and inflammation, which is steatohepatitis, also called NASH. uh, And in a proportion of people, it can carry on to cirrhosis, um, the downstream complications. By definition, it occurs in the absence of a history of alcohol abuse, and particularly it's associated with the metabolic syndrome, by which I mean type 2 diabetes, obesity, high cholesterol, and hypertension. Okay, so it matters because it can be a marker of cardiovascular disease or metabolic syndrome. Uh, Is that right? Absolutely. So I think it, it matters for a number of reasons. The first one is that it's a progressive liver disease in its own right. It also matters because it's uh, a very common condition and it can act as a cofactor. So, for example, we know that people who have hepatitis C or hemochromatosis or who indeed consume too much alcohol, if they also have an element of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the rate at which the fibrosis and the scarring progresses in the liver is accelerated. Okay, now your article is tantalizingly entitled How Big a Problem is Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease? That, that implies to me that there are lots of uncertainties here. Would you like to outline some of these? I think there are clinical uncertainties right throughout the, um, the spectrum of uh, our contact with a patient. First of all, we don't yet really understand just how prevalent uh, fatty liver disease is in the general population. Secondly, we, we still have difficulty diagnosing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and particularly differentiating those from the simple steatosis, the simple fat in the liver, from those with fat and inflammation, the NASH group. And finally, we also need to have a better idea how we should be advising and how we should be actually treating our patients when we do find they have either NAFLD or NASH. Can you take me through the steps for actually diagnosing this condition? It's most likely that we will come across these patients uh, in uh, clinical situations associated with insulin resistance. Classically, what we might be finding when we come across these patients is really relatively mild abnormalities in the liver function tests in the biochemistry. Uh, And usually it's a a modest elevation in the alanine transaminase. Uh, Often we find that the alanine transaminase is 
uh, elevated slightly more than the aspartate transaminase. And so the ratio of these two gives us some idea of uh, the presence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So in that setting, if we see these abnormalities, we should then be proceeding firstly to uh, identify if there's any other potential cause for this condition, which would be our normal standard screens for liver disease, including viral and autoimmune and other metabolic forms of liver disease. We then also want to be doing an ultrasound scan to look at the liver to see if there is fat within the liver. Now, we have to accept that um, most imaging modalities have limited uh, sensitivity in this sense. The sensitivity of ultrasound requires that about 30% of uh, the cells in the liver should have fatty infiltration before it's detectable. And so here we, we have to be somewhat pragmatic in our choices. But reasonable screening tests in an insulin-resistant population would be to start with liver biochemistry uh, and an ultrasound scan, and then to move on to exclude other causes of uh, liver disease, as I suggest. Given the limitations then of ultrasound, and once you have a good clinical suspicion that it is indeed non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, should I be referring all my patients to you for uh, for further investigation? I think what we need to uh, institute is a staged uh, algorithm to the clinical assessment of patients. So as you've rightly said, identifying people at risk, identifying those who do appear to have uh, liver abnormalities is a very important first step. Having done that, um, I think what we next need to be considering is a form of non-invasive assessment of the patients, which can actually be very effectively performed uh, in primary care. And there are a number of um, simple uh, scoring systems, which, for example, are based on the uh, liver biochemistry changes and various anthropometrics, such as body mass index and presence or absence of diabetes in the history, that have a relatively robust uh, positive and, more importantly, negative predictive value for excluding advanced fibrosis in these patients. For all patients, irrespective of what the score shows, we would, of course, want to be giving lifestyle advice and potentially monitoring them. But those with higher risk, we would consider uh, referring on to secondary or tertiary care. Yes, that's sensible advice. Given the invasiveness of liver biopsy, we certainly don't want to subject every single patient to that test, do we? No, absolutely. It's it's really a case of identifying the people where information gained from the liver biopsy will give added value. Because what we know is that those patients with early fibrosis on liver biopsy are the ones most likely uh, to progress and develop complications with fibrosis. And so it's those patients where we really need to be addressing therapy. And I think this is done really best as um, a partnership between primary care, secondary or tertiary care, and also other allied healthcare professionals. We need to work with our dietitian colleagues and also physiotherapy and um, uh, psychology to assess where there are potential changes in lifestyle that may allow uh, sustained weight loss. Secondly, we need to optimize our treatment for the metabolic syndrome. And there, are, there is some early evidence now suggesting that particular anti-diabetic agents, uh, such as the glycosones, uh, may be helpful in um, reducing inflammation in the liver in steatohepatitis. Although, of course, the trial evidence does not yet show uh, any reduction in fibrosis or anything along those lines.
So it's, it's that combination of therapies, which is almost a, a holistic approach that I think we need to be adopting with these patients uh, through lifestyle and pharmacological intervention. And ideally, how often should we be monitoring and reviewing these patients? Okay. In patients with um, fatty liver disease, I think it would be reasonable to uh, reassess their liver function tests, their biochemical tests, uh, on an annual basis. And the non-invasive assessment tool, one of these simple scores, could very easily be recalculated on an annual basis so that if one begins to find people moving up the risk category or if they acquire additional diagnosis, such as subsequent uh, diagnosis of diabetes, then uh, one is able to respond to that. Uh, In people with uh, confirmed steatohepatitis, again, uh, annual follow-up would be appropriate. And it may be necessary to re-biopsy a patient between three and five years after an index biopsy. If there's uh, an indication that the disease may have progressed, Uh, because this obviously provides useful information for the patient and also for the clinician treating them. And over time, new therapies are, of course, being developed. And this allows us to, again, refocus those on the appropriate individual patients. So in summary, we have a condition that we know is very common, which represents a spectrum of liver disease. The difficulty for us at the moment is finding a good non-invasive and cost-effective way to identify those who are at risk of progressive severe liver disease. And that Uncertainties article is now available on bmj.com. Earlier this week, new research was published which examines the link between the provision of mental health beds in England and rates of involuntary admissions, what used to be called sectioning. I'm joined on the phone by Patrick Keown, a consultant psychiatrist in the NHS, who also works in academic psychiatry at Newcastle University. Thanks for talking to us, Dr Keown. Now, this is against a backdrop of a change in the UK from kind of institutional psychiatric care to more care in the community. So could you take us through that for a start? What's the rationale behind that change? That's correct. The um, move from the institution to care that's closer to people's homes dates back to the 1950s when it was felt that the quality of services being provided in the large asylums could be improved by reconnecting people with where they lived and where they'd come from and their families and social networks. And has that been largely a positive change, do you think? Overall, I think that has been a positive change and certainly patients report higher levels of satisfaction when they are able to address their problems at home or within their local communities rather than having to be admitted somewhere perhaps a long way from home. Of course, but uh, against that general positive change, you've been looking at involuntary admission. Why did you decide to have a look at that? Did you have an inkling something was going on there? Well, We were aware that since the early 1980s, as the number of mental illness beds have reduced, there has been an increase in the use of involuntary admissions. And we wondered whether these were linked. A number of years ago, we did a study looking at changes in services in Newcastle, and that made us think that they might possibly be linked. Now, when you looked at this, and obviously all your methods are available online, 
You found that a decrease in mental health bed provision was followed by an increase in involuntary admissions. Can you quantify that association for us? Yes, we found that the closure of two mental illness beds was associated with one um, additional involuntary admission in the following year. And that was particularly the case for civil involuntary admissions. So that's ones where the the police weren't involved in the... uh, The police, and in particular the courts, wouldn't be involved. How about admissions which were non-civil? Did the rate of those change? Overall, there was a slight reduction in forensic involuntary admissions. We found that secure beds actually increased in number. So particularly the closure of non-secure beds was associated with an increase in civil involuntary admissions. So is this indicative of a change in the, in the pattern of mental illness in the community? We think that the changes we've talked about are not accounted for by a change in the pattern of mental illness within the population. Now, your research couldn't look at a direct association, so you're unable to say exactly what the cause was. But do you have any theories about how this association might be working? Well, we have a few ideas about what might be behind this. Certainly in areas of high socioeconomic deprivation, helping people address their problems in the community is proving difficult. There may be a delay in the availability of a bed may result in the point where the admission has to be on an involuntary basis. And it may also be that because psychiatric wards have become more acute environments, it may there may be a reluctance for patients who have been in already to go in. And another possible mechanism might be that with the pressure on beds, admissions may be shorter people may be returning to the environment where they've had problems, and that, in turn, may result in some readmissions. What does this actually mean for patients? Does a patient who is admitted involuntarily generally have a worse outcome than someone who goes in voluntarily? Do they have to stay in care longer? Involuntary admissions, yes, they, on average, are longer, and sometimes it can have a very beneficial effect in terms of allowing somebody to get the help they need. But overall, most patients and most psychiatrists would be be seeing it as an outcome that we would want to avoid. It must be quite distressing for, for everyone involved. It is. It's very distressing for the individual often, as well as their carers and relatives. In terms of a purely sort of economic point of view, it seems like perhaps it's not going to be a saving at all to to cut beds in a way that would make these increase. This paper is not saying that bed closures per se are inappropriate. One of our findings is that bed closures need to be done in a measured and relatively slow and steady rate. Periods of accelerated bed closure were the periods where the rate of involuntary admission went up markedly. But measured and planned closures could be appropriate, especially if we can anticipate the likely effects of those and put in place services that will be able to 
manage that change. Absolutely. And this paper seems quite timely given the uh, the changes that are going on in the NHS at the moment. Absolutely. There's been little evidence about the effects of bed closures and we're hoping that this will allow those changes to be planned in a more coherent and comprehensive way. Great. Well, thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to us. Pleasure. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.